Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. I'm so glad to have Thomas Björkman with me. Welcome to my podcast, Thomas. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thomas Björkman is an author and social entrepreneur with great interest in science and philosophy. He used to be an investment banker and property developer. He is the founder of several companies and organizations, including investment banking partners. Uh, he has also served as chairman of EFG Investment Bank. Ten years ago, he founded the Ikshadet Foundation to support sustainable development for individuals, organizations and society. So, Thomas, let's kick off with a question about several arenas and initiatives that you have supported. For example, Tech Farm in Stockholm, Perspectiva Institute in London, the Co-Creation Loft in Berlin, the Digital Initiative 29K Org, where you are gathering all changemakers to co-create a more conscious and sustainable society. There's very many initiatives, and I'm really impressed by this, but what is your red thread through the companies that you work on? That's a very good question and I sometimes ask myself <laughs> that same question. But I think something that is a common denominator for all these initiatives is really the idea behind my foundation, Ekvaret Foundation, the Oak Island Foundation, which I founded uh, 10 years ago after uh, leaving the financial industry. And uh, the idea behind the Ekferd Foundation is really to look at how personal inner development and societal change really go hand in hand and uh, support each other and also are dependent on each other. And when we are now moving very rapidly into a more and more complex uh, society, then it becomes even more and more important to support a personal development that makes it possible for us all to embrace and handle this complexity rather than becoming afraid of complexity. Mm. So let's get back to you, Thomas. What is your passion? I think I've always been driven by two passions, actually, mm -hmm. where one is a drive to really try to uh, understand this world. It is, as we said, a complex world, but I think it is possible to uh, understand the world from a big eyes perspective. And that has always fascinated me. And I started by trying to understand the world from a science perspective, studying mathematics and, uh, and physics. But equally important it has been for me to, to try to understand the world equally important, and that is my second passion, that, that is to be a, a creator in the world, trying to, to do things mm -hmm. in the world. And there, of course, I, I started off as a, a business entrepreneur, starting companies within uh, IT and property and uh, banking, as, as you mentioned. But then more lately, it has been creating uh, social entrepreneurship uh, projects of uh, various kinds. So it's really these two things. And I think they go for me very much hand in hand, trying to understand the world, but also being an active 
co-creator mm. in this uh, interesting world that we are all co-creating all the time. Mm. Actually, I find it fascinating uh, to study what you're doing and how you're doing because it's interesting that the one person effect, what can one person do in order to affect the society? Yeah. That's not a very, I would say, common kind of uh, perspective that people have. So in that sense, I think it's really interesting to study what you're doing, what you've done so far, and also, of course, what kind of effect it's going gonna, it's gonna to have on, in the medium long term. Yeah, but perhaps not just um, mm. one person. I mean, we, mm. I, I, ha I have around me a very dedicated team in the various projects that are uh, co-creators in, mm. all, in all the different mm. projects. But I, th I think you're absolutely right there in uh, the fact that, and I, I love the quote of the American anthropologist Margaret Mead. She used to say, never doubt that a small group of dedicated persons can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. And I think that is very true. I think that's very true. We are, we are underestimating the, the impact that we can actually have on, uh, on the world. Mm. And that's really, really the story that I'm telling in, uh, in my Swedish book that was out last year, The World We Create, with an emphasis on we, mm. because we tend to forget exactly. that it is actually we all together that are constantly creating this world. And I hope that I have been able to show in the book that uh, we have m a much, much larger freedom Mm. in that co-creation mm. than we uh, normally would think. Mm. And what would you define as your, um, let's call it, uh, transformational moments in, in life that have influenced you the most? I don't think I, I had any specific uh, transformational mm. uh, moments, but I have certainly a few times definitely transformed my... my uh, if not my life, so at least my career, starting off in um, academics. And uh, I was really set on becoming uh, a professional academic in, in physics. Mm -hmm. And I really liked uh, the, the subject. But then at some point fairly early in that career, I decided to make a 180 degree turn and leave the academic world and go into business. And that was a transformative shift, at least, mm. that uh, happened in a couple of months from uh, sort of uh, realizing that I, I wanted to go into business and actually taking the decision to, uh, to do that. Mm. Then I started to study uh, economics for, uh, I would even, not even say a couple of years, I think it was more like a couple of months or something, and very, <laughs> very... Uh, rapidly uh, discovered the limitations of the economic models, and that is really what I'm mm -hmm. writing about in the book, The Market Myth, how, how limited the traditional economic uh, thinking is, and mm -hmm. that the neoclassical economic models are not really teaching anyone to how to make m money or even how the world is, is functioning. It's all just a play with mathematical uh, formulas. Mm. Really, mm. and uh, so, but is there any small, um, maybe sum up points from the book that you want to share here about the market myth, uh, given what's going on today in the world? Uh, 
no, not other than uh, that the whole uh, old economic thinking that is uh, still the main uh, teaching at uh, university today is really uh, cementing the old, uh, the old way of uh, the old enlightenment way of looking at us as uh, humans and looking at the world, mm. sort of. Um, believing that we humans are completely rational individuals that are transparent to ourselves, trying to maximize uh, our utility at mm. every moment. Mm. And of course, science today uh, knows that that is, of course, not the case. But still, a lot of economic thinking is, at least old economic thinking, is based on that. Now, luckily, there are coming up new areas in economic thinking, and I'm writing about those in, in my book. Fields like uh, institutional economics, behavioral economics, um, and complexity economics mm. that takes a completely different view of us as uh, economic agents. And the world view that comes out of that is very interesting. It's a completely different view on humans, on society, and on the world. Mm. But that has still not really left uh, academia. So uh, these new findings, they are awarded with the Nobel Prize in economics, but they mm. have not still penetrated into uh, politics and the, the general understanding. Mm. But if we see countries as systems, what do you think about having countries with a purpose? Can a country create a purpose? Countries were created for a purpose. But as with many uh, institutions, we have forgotten the purpose. And somehow also perhaps the whole concept of a nation state, of a country, might be uh, a less and less relevant concept in a shrinking um, world. But certainly we need to ask for any political organization, any geographical political organization, what is the purpose? And I think that is, for example, completely evident with, um, for example, the, the European Union. Yeah. Uh, I have my base in London, as, as you know, and I think the way that the uh, EU referendum was handled here was completely uh, strange, I would even say. And perhaps a little bit also the same in Sweden. I, re I remember when we had the referendum about the, the euro in Sweden, that it seems like the purpose of EU, both in the Swedish referendum and in the UK referendum, was sort of some economic uh, purpose to have... Um, have a larger market, for the market to function better, to be able to create more profit. It's more profitable to have EU. Hmm. And of course, again, profit can never be a, a purpose. Then nobody will, or, or very few, will vote to remain in the EU because of profit reasons. Hmm. The purpose of EU is, of course, uh, peace. EU was created because uh, Europe had seen so many wars and during the 1900s, two completely devastating world wars. 
and some very visionary and innovative uh, politicians got together and said, not another war in Europe. How can we assure that? So that was the purpose, the initial purpose of, uh, of EU. And if we forget about that purpose, then the institution will, will uh, start to uh, disintegrate. Now, luckily, I think that after the Brexit, mm. a lot of people in the UK and elsewhere are starting to realize that we, we need to uh, again talk about the bigger purpose mm. of EU. And I think we need to do the same about every country. If, if the country should have a, a reason to exist, it must be there for a, a purpose, mm. not because we have always had uh, Sweden or always had UK, which is of course not true. I mean, these are fairly recent innovations. But I also think that, that when, when the world is shrinking, we also need to uh, accept that the nation state is playing a less and less important role. And we need to move our narratives from the nation state to uh, larger political units and eventually, uh, of course, a political unit that will uh, embrace the whole of the world in some respect, even though I do not perhaps believe in a, in a world government in, in the old sense of the word. So that is one aspect. Mm. The other aspect is, of course, that we as individuals, we have difficulties already extending our circle of compassion to a country when we are asking people to extend even beyond Sweden it becomes more and more and more difficult. So in that respect, the, there might still be a need to have a strong narrative and feel a strong affinity, both to uh, a small region, perhaps to a city, to a country, mm. and then to larger and larger um, areas and I think that is something that is very much forgotten uh, in today's uh, more um, liberal uh, uh, circles where we take for granted that most people actually feel like or would like to feel like world citizens mm. when most people living in Manchester feel like uh, they belong to Manchester at, the, at perhaps a maximum and is looking towards London as something different and, uh, mm. and strange. Mm. And not recognizing that human need of being able to feel belonging to mm. some sort of geographical area mm. that might even be smaller than the nation state. I think that is something that we will... Uh, from a, from a liberal perspective, definitely start to address. And then realizing that the key here again is this lifelong uh, ego development. That as, as a child and as a young ad adult, you can only feel identity with a smaller circle. But that the aim throughout life should of course be to be able to extend your, your circle of compassion or your circle of belonging to larger and larger entities and, and eventually be able to embrace the whole world and hopefully also coming generations. Mm.
Which is the beauty of age, I would say, because yes, with, yes. with age, uh, you actually follow somehow yeah. these, these phases. Yeah. But if you do not see this uh, development through life, which we do not really do in our, uh, in our political philosophy today, th then this, of course, becomes very um, confusing. Mm. Mm. So uh, I think one of the most important um, new lenses that we need to adopt to really understand the world is, is to, to see the lifelong development that we all are going through, to facilitate that lifelong development, but also to appreciate that wherever you are on your life development or in your life development, you need to be appreciated for the person that you are and your needs at that level of development has to be addressed and, uh, and met. Mm. And not just uh, neglected, or that you that we somehow feel that that uh, those needs are uh, wrong in some way, mm. that you want to belong to a smaller community or that you want to defend your country or whatever it might mm. be. Mm. And um, it's actually amazing when you think about the fact that only, um, for example, one or so percent of people on this planet is kind of having the power of ruling the rest, right? Uh, what is your reflection on, on that? How do we change that? Uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's, of course, very difficult. But when you say 1%, and then we, we usually talk about this 1% mm. elite, then, of course, we, we should uh, realize that probably, if not all, most of uh, us living in, for example, Sweden or in... Uh, in London or mm. where, wherever we are, uh, belong to that mm. 1%. Mm. So the real, real economic elite is, of course, much, much uh, smaller than what 1% mm. even. Mm. And um, it's uh, difficult. And I think that um, one reason that, that we are um, accepting this, uh, in many ways, unjust system is the fact that we somehow tend completely wrongly view the market as a natural phenomenon. Mm. When it's absolutely clear that uh, the market and even the free market is a human social construct. Mm. So uh, there is no such as a free market and uh, mm. the market could be completely uh, different. But until we start to realize that um, mm. the market is part of the world that we create again, mm. then it's difficult to uh, really see what can be done. Mm. But of course, a lot of things can be done mm. within the present market system. Mm. But then perhaps even more in interesting is that we are right now very rapidly due to uh, technological development, moving into a completely new human environment that will put uh, our institutions, including the, the market, under very high uh, pressure. And one could say that humanity has spent 99.9% of uh, our history in an environment that has, at least during generations, been a constant environment characterized by scarcity. And our brains have been wired for such an environment. But also our institutions 
have been created to support such an environment. And now, very much through, of course, digital innovation and other innovation, we are moving into a world that is constantly changing. So if large change previously took place between generations, now, just during one generation, we will see completely different worlds. And the world just in 10 years from now will be a completely different world from today. So how do we manage through our uh, Stone Age brains and our old institutions? How do we manage to handle such a change, the rapid change? And the rapid change is only one thing. The other thing that is uh, is uh, happening is, of course, that we are, and this is very good news, that we are moving away from a society or a world characterized by scarcity into a world hopefully characterized by abundance. Mm. Abundance hopefully also within planetary mm. boundaries. Mm. And all our, many of our institutions and our brain, and certainly the market, is all dependent on scarce resources, that uh, mm. we all want to obtain scarce resources and that our labor mm. is scarce and is in demand. Mm. And then where demand and supply meets, we have a distribution of, of goods. But in a world where, where the, the marginal cost for products are rapidly reaching zero mm. and where perhaps uh, we will not all have to work 40 hours a week, mm. which is good news again, It's good news and people are scared of it. It's weird. Yes, right? <laughs> yes. But, but, but it, is, it is not so strange because as long as we are relying on the old institutions, yeah. mm. not having employment mm. for everyone is bad news. Mm. Sure. But for humanity, of course, it's good news. Mm. But we will have to um, rebuild our institutions. Mm. And this is the super challenge that uh, we are facing Mm. right now. And how do we define the institutions? Because today, for me, institutions are Google and Amazon and, and these kind of companies as well, as much as, you know, the old style institutions. So what institutions are we looking at five, ten years from now? Well, for one is that I, I am fairly sure that we will have to take a very close look at uh, the, the market as our main uh, system for allocating mm. the value that we are creating. But then another institution that I think uh, more and more people are also starting to, um, to look at is uh, democracy. So democracy, mm -hmm. uh, I'm a strong believer in the concept of democracy, but obviously the, the present implementation of this beautiful idea, and especially the present implementation of this beautiful idea, together with um, campaign financing mm. and the media climate, both the traditional media climate and also, of course, social media, uh, which has come under focus uh, recently. So will we have to reinvent democracy in order for democracy to uh, survive? Mm. So, I mean, they, these are I, huge, I, quest <laughs> huge, huge <laughs> questions. But, yes. but, but the, 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 the sad thing, I think, is that uh, We, we are not yet really asking us mm. these questions. We are not really yet asking us these questions. And perhaps it is because they are a bit scary. Yeah, but I definitely think that uh, there is a, 
a need from the perspective of all people. There is a need for other kinds of, you know, other types of leadership, also political leadership. Uh, we don't have the leaders that we deserve somehow. And uh, Well, not- we have the leaders that we uh, elect. We elect, unfortunately, <laughs> which, is, which is weird. It's contradictory, yeah. But at the same time, everybody, I think, feels deep down that where is the authentic, genuine vision and leadership that's really going to attract uh, a lot of people? Uh, it's all like, a, as you say, a, a kind of a theater communicating certain aspects, some certain promises that nobody is ever, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, kind of comparing with yeah. uh, after four years has passed. So, but but I, th- I think one also has to um, acknowledge that having visions today is not as easy as it was 50 years ago. Mm. And again, depending on this rapidly uh, changing environment and technology. Mm. And, um, but why? Some, why? Because it's complex? Well, because yeah, the world yeah, is well, complex? Well, well so, some futurologists say that that the technology that will have the biggest impact on society in 20 years' time, that technology has not yet been invented. Mm. So, I mean, it's, it's, in that case, it is very difficult mm. to, have, to be able to paint a, a clear vision of a utopia. Mm. Where do we want to be in 20 years' time, let alone 50 or 100 years' time? Mm. But, but then I sometimes say that, Okay, so, so perhaps we cannot, and perhaps we, we, we should not try to paint a picture of a utopia and say, this is exactly where we want to go. Mm. But if we cannot tell exactly where we want to go, then for me, it becomes even more important the process that is taking us forward. So even if we can't say what is the the good goal, at least then we should be able to discuss what is the good process going forward. And today we, we are as humanity relying mainly on two processes going forward, where one of those processes is the market. Whatever the market decides that we do, we, we do. So the market is driving us into the future. But again, as the market is a human construct, mm. depending on how we construct the market, it will take us in different directions. But mm. we are not talking about that, mm. generally. And then the second important process or mechanism for taking us into the future is democracy. Mm. But again, also democracy is a human uh, construct, yeah. is, mm. is an implementation. And this present mm. implementation might not take mm. us where we uh, want, Mm. at least if we are not uh, Mm. carefully managing the democratic process in a way that we might have neglected the last 10 or 20 years. Mm. And and in a way also one part of this democracy system is also the education. Absolutely. And there the education plays a very important role, but it, it's, it feels like it has been, um, you know, left behind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, 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 ab- 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 absolutely. And, what should and, be done there, yeah. in your opinion? Yeah, and, 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 and now I take the opportunity to, to mention my third book, my most recent book, okay. uh, The Nordic Secret, that I've written together with a Danish philosopher, Lena Andersen. Mm. There we are looking at education, and we're looking at the German concept of, of Bildung which is uh, really 
very similar to uh, a modern concept of developmental psychology, of, of ego de development. And the, the reason why we started to uh, research this German elite, initially 1800s concept of Bildung, was that we found some very visionary Nordic intellectual and politicians 150 years ago, mm. when uh, the Nordic countries were still uh, authoritarian, very poor uh, agrarian countries that wanted to uh, develop these countries into uh, democracies. Mm. And uh, looking back today, I think one must say that, that they succeeded. Mm. So then the Nordic countries has been, up, at least up, up until uh, a decade uh, ago, really uh, well-functioning uh, industrial democracies. So how did they manage? What was their vision? They had a very, very clear connection between democracy and you could say lifelong education or this concept of personal development. They understood that in times of rapid societal change, which they knew were coming with the industrial society just around the corner, in rapidly changing societies, most people become scared. And then they start to look for an external, outside authority. Mm. That could be an authority like in religion, in searching the truth in the Bible, or it could be in a strong, uh, in a strong leader that they would put trust in. But these very visionary politicians and intellectuals, they, they didn't want to be those authoritarian leaders. They wanted to develop a thriving democracy. Mm. So they knew that in order to do that, they needed to create structures where a large portion of the population would be able to actually find themselves, mm. to find their inner compass. Because they knew that only by having your own inner compass is it possible for you to navigate the change, not grasp for external uh, authority, and to really be a co-creator of the future? And that is what they wanted. In, in today's language, one could say that they wanted everyone to be a change maker, everyone to be a co-creator. And in order to be that, they needed to uh, help people to find themselves. So how did they do that? They created retreat centers, mm -hmm. lots of them. So uh, by the turn of the last century, when we went from the 1800s to the 1900s, back then, only in Denmark, there was more than 100 retreat centers. In Norway, there was almost 100 retreat centers. In Sweden, there were more than 100 retreat centers, where a substantial part of the young population, after... Uh, establishing yourself in your first work and perhaps working a few years. Back then you were in your early 20s by then. Then you went for four to six months on a personal retreat where the expressed goal was for you to find your inner compass mm. and to become what uh, developmental psychologists today call to become self-authoring. Not relying on external authority, but really knowing your own values. 
And these centers is, of course, what we today call folkhögskolor. In English, that would be folk high school or or something like that. And uh, up to 10% of each cohort of young adults actually participated in these long retreats back then. And for those that were not able to participate in these retreats, there were... um, what we today would call self-facilitating groups of 8, 10, 12 persons meeting once a week Mm. and uh, discussing the big questions of uh, Mm. life, trying to uh, find your values and and your compass. Mm. And they were called study circles. And these institutions, they still exist today. But, you, uh, but we, we don't link that. To, we, we don't link that to, all, to, yeah. uh, to personal development and we don't link it to the project of creating mm. democracy mm. and how important these politicians and, uh, and thinkers thought that it was. Mm. And this was from all, all the political spectrum. If I should mention three persons in Sweden, I would mention Jalma Branting, mm. who was our first um, social democratic um, prime minister. He was totally involved in this, mm. but also um, his opponent, uh, Karl Staff, mm. who was the liberal prime minister when uh, Jalma Branting was not prime minister. Jalma Branting was prime minister three times. Karl Staff was mm. prime minister two times. He was also 100% dedicated to this. Mm. And then you have the early feminists like Ellen Kay, and uh, she was also completely into to this. And she is perhaps the one that has most succinctly been able to define what Bildung actually is. And and Mm -hmm. she has a famous quote that goes like this, Bildung is what remains with you Mm -hmm. when you have forgotten everything that you have learned. Very good. Yeah, so it's so clear yeah. that this is not about learning new languages or l- learning a lot of facts. Mm. Mm. It's really expanding mm. your consciousness. It's to become more conscious. Mm. And th- these people were all, uh, at least these three people, but all, most of these people driving this uh, movement, at least in Sweden, they were, they were atheists, mm. but they were still talking about the importance of a uh, inner spiritual development. Mm. So they were actually creating, in their own language, a mm. secular spiritual uh, development. Mm. We would perhaps today call it personal development or ego development so, or it, something like that. It sounds like it would be a good idea to uh, revive this base model and, and apply it in today's society. I mean, regardless of parties and, and leadership. No, 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 just, absolutely, uh, because mm. we have forgotten that... that mm. A fundament of democracy mm. is, of course, that we have a population who is uh, yeah. fairly secure in their values and in their opinions. Mm. Otherwise, it's so easy for just a demagogue to come and sway the people and, uh, and become uh, elected. And I think it was so uh, visionary mm. of these uh, people 150 years ago to really to see this connection. Mm. And you say revive, I, I think we, we still have this institution. And in Sweden today, the budget for these institutions, like Folkhögskolor and Studiesirke, the budget for Folkbildning is this year 3.7 billion Swedish kronas. Mm. 
which is about 400 million euros or something, which mm. is, in terms of Swedish budget, it's a huge amount. I mean, it's a mm. substantial part of our defense budget. Mm. I mean, 400 million euros, mm. a lot of money. Mm. But nobody today, mm. uh, well, I shouldn't say nobody, but, but generally very few, realizes why we have this uh, huge budget and why we are still keeping it. And the reason why we are keeping it is was that this, this was something that was completely agreed amongst all the political parties a hundred years ago, whether they were social democrats or liberals or whatever. This was, uh, everyone agreed that this was essential for democracy. So if you're interested, read The Nordic Secret. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Thomas. I will. But somebody told me sometime that uh, when I asked, you know, what's the point of life, so to say, and he said, and he said, well, you know, actually it is to remember what we already know, to go yeah. through life in order to remember what we actually already know. Um, so to connect back to the, you know, the spiritual component in, in this that you, you just mentioned. But uh, if we would move back to um, businesses and, and, and corporations and organizations, um, what long-term solutions for business do you believe in? Leadership is an uh, ex extremely um, important component. And leadership to me, again, comes down to uh, personal development and having mature leaders that can really em embrace the complexity, both within organizations and uh, outside organizations. So... Leadership is one component. Then the second component is, of course, corporate culture and understanding the importance of uh, corporate culture and corporate values. Those are uh, two very important, but perhaps the most important is for uh, all organizations, whether in business or not, is to really find uh, your purpose. And that that purpose has to be something that is beyond just making money. Making money could be a, is a necessary means, but what is the purpose of your uh, company? Mm. And I think that will be uh, absolutely necessary to start to think about a greater purpose for your organization just in order to, uh, to survive in the future and to uh, uh, attract uh, good uh, employees. And I think one is already seeing this in the business schools all over the world. 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, there might have been enough to, for, for the big consultancy corporation or the big bank just to offer a good uh, mm. business card and a good salary and the prospect of a bonus. And you would attract the most talented from the business school. But that is not the case mm. any longer. Now the business schools tell me that, that, uh, that they're... Uh, best uh, students, the first question they ask a, a potential uh, employer is, uh, what, what's your purpose? Mm. Well, what is your contribution to the world? Mm. What are you doing? Mm. Why should I work there? Mm. So uh, if, if thinking about your purpose and defining your purpose, I think that is going to be key. I'm so happy for this development. I can't tell you. I've been looking for, forward to this since years. And now when you see it happening uh, through the new generations, it's wonderful. But if you would assume that you have all doors open and you have all resources available, what would you then innovate or change? We are going through very interesting times, to say the least, right now. We are moving 
into a, a new level of an even smaller world, also meaning an even more complex and interconnected world. And that some of the old systems and ways of thinking and acting are, are, are breaking down. And, we, and we, we see that. We see that, of course, through the environmental uh, degradation. We see that through psychological ill health. We, we see that through uh, phenomena like um, Erdogan, Brexit, uh, Trump, Sverigedemokraterna, Alternativ für Deutschland, you name it. We, we, we see the signs everywhere that the present way of, of seeing the world, that has been so strong and so helpful in creating this modern world with all the good things that we have, like democracy, education and healthcare and all of that. But this way of seeing the world, the, the enlightenment way of seeing the world is really coming to an end, I think. And the last time we really changed the way that we see the world, when we had the, the, a large mind shift, we could call it, that was, of course, during the Enlightenment, when we went from an old way, an old religious dogmatic way of seeing the world into a, now a rational, scientific way of seeing the world. And that has, again, been uh, extremely useful. And that was what we needed 200 years ago. But today, that mindset is now killing humanity. The most important thing right now is to try to uh, develop again a new mindset, a new way to see uh, the world that will be based on the scientific discoveries during the last, say, 50 years, or even in some mm. areas like neuroscience, perhaps only the last 15 years. We have learned so much, and these new scientific findings, they have to somehow be incorporated into our worldview, which they are not yet. Mm. But then also I think that, that we need to complement the pure scientific worldview with the understanding, which is a postmodern insight, that we humans are meaning-making uh, creatures and that we need uh, narratives to orient mm -hmm. ourselves. And that is, of course, what religion has always been giving us. It has been giving us uh, narratives and metaphors to uh, try to understand uh, our world. But most of the religious narratives and metaphors, they are, of course, two or three thousand years old. And, and in, of course, in some respects, uh, I mean, we, we are the same people as we were 3,000 years ago. So some of uh, those old truths still hold, mm. but we are in a completely different environment now. Mm. So what are the new narratives mm. that will help us to, to navigate the world in, in the future? Mm. And when you say we need to shift the mindset, in practical terms, how can that be done? Uh, and I'm sure that part of your initiatives and, and arenas that you are creating is part of the answer in a way, but how can it be done in practical terms? I mean, there's billions of people out there. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but I think, I think in, like in every paradigm shift in, throughout history, every time we have substantially changed the way that we are looking at the world, 
that that is a process over generations. So we will have to uh, accept that this will take generations. Mm. On the other hand, we have some urgent problems, like the environment, for example, mm. where we need to act now. Mm. And this is, of course, uh, difficult. I would like to use another quote here, the, this time from the early uh, quantum physicist Max Planck, talking about paradigm shifts. Mm -hmm. He was a bit frustrated by uh, his fellow colleagues not adopting the quantum mechanic view of the world, which is, of course, a very counterintuitive way of looking at the world, but uh, a necessary and true way. He said that new paradigms in physics do not get established by old physicists being convinced. New paradigms in physics get established by old physicists dying. Mm. <laughs> so it is a little bit like that. Mm. The professor who is 50 years old and has been teaching neoclassical economic thinking will not all of a sudden start embracing complexity economics and behavior economics and start teaching something new. That will be the next generation of, uh, of academics. And uh, then it will take even longer before it will penetrate in the, uh, in the general population. But um, if I should give some examples thereof, uh, it's, it's easy to say we need a new, um, a new worldview, we need a mind shift, but, but what do I actually mean by that? And uh, I usually talk about five points. The first one is the way we view the world. And we need to move from a way where we see the world as consisting on, of things that we name and that we view as more or less fixed into seeing most aspects of the world as processes as complex, interdependent processes under constant development. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot about going from a reductionist, linear thinking into a more holistic or integrated systems mm -hmm. thinking. Mm -hmm. And if you adopt this sort of systems perspective, then a lot of other things automatically follows. For example, the second uh, change of perspective that, that I would uh, say is necessary. That is our view of humans. That we need to go from looking upon humans as separated individuals into realizing that we are all interconnected, mm -hmm. open systems, very, very depending on each other in so many different ways. Not just the fact that we now know that we have mirror neurons and understanding that we share a common culture and language and how important those uh, aspects uh, are, but many, many, many other aspects. So we need to go from a view of looking upon us as separate individuals into connected individuals, very dependent on our uh, common environment. So we are drops of the, the same ocean. Absolutely, absolutely. And the sense of uh, a need for tribes as well, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. We have a very strong need to um, feel a belonging mm. to a group. Mm. And one of those challenges, of course, in a shrinking world is 
for us to be able to extend that group. So when we are children, of course, it's natural that we belong to the family and it's difficult to see very much belong of, beyond our family and, and our closest friends. Mm. But as mature humans, we must be able to see beyond our own family or tribe or even beyond our own nation mm. and feel some sort of at least remote connectedness mm. and responsibility for the totality of, of humanity and for future generations. Mm. And that is abstract. And that does not just happen automatically. And that is part of this building process, the ego development process that we mentioned earlier. So then the, the third new perspective I think we need to, to take is really about our own consciousness. Realize that uh, our own individual consciousness, it is also an open complex system on the constant development during life. And that we are not those rational decision makers that the Enlightenment philosophers thought. All since Enlightenment, we have had a view of our, of our mind as some sort of machine, rational machine that always uh, can take the best decisions for ourselves and for uh, our families and for our countries for on the short and the long term. But of course now today we know that we are not those rational decision makers and that uh, we are uh, constantly guided by our uh, feelings and the subconscious. I think at least three of, of the uh, uh, Nobel Prizes in uh, economics during the last 10 years have been just in the field of e behavioral economics, mm. pointing this out, that uh, mm. this old view of the mind mm. as a machine, as a computer, is completely wrong. Mm. But then the second thing, of course, looking at the mind as, a, as a, an open system, is of course to realize that this system is under constant development throughout life that this mind is not ready when we are 18 or 20, mm. but that this mind is developing throughout life and is constantly being formed. Mm. And it was actually this formation of the mind that the Germans were calling Bildung, mm. because Bildung is German for formation. Mm. Mm. So they knew, mm. those philosophers knew, but we have now forgotten, Mm. that the mind is a complex organic system under constant development and that the way we make meaning and see the world can shift substantially many times mm. during a lifetime mm. and that that is a natural process mm. and that developmental psychologists today see a pattern mm. in that development and that one of the first developments that we can go through as adults is really this development of finding our inner compass, mm. becoming self-authoring that we talked about mm. before. Mm. But I that is a development that usually do not take place uh, mm. historically until you are perhaps in your 40s uh, or, or even 50s, mm. or even if it ever happens. But that is a development that can be facilitated. Mm. And again, Bildung was about facilitating that process of finding yourself, finding your inner guidance. What about you? When did you feel that you found that inner guidance or some kind of a clarity 
this has been connected to uh, the two shifts mm. that um, we were talking about earlier when I sort of shifted from academia going into, um, into business and then going from uh, being an entrepreneur focused on making money. Because I was really of an entrepreneur, very focused on on mm. making money for for many many years, to uh, starting to realize that you need to look for a purpose beyond uh, making money, and trying to find that purpose. And for me, then of course, that purpose is to try to become a small part in the co-creation of. Uh, a society that really sees these things that we are talking about, that sees these uh, mm. developmental aspects both in the individual and in uh, society, that sees the importance of culture, not only mm. the importance of culture in, in corporate culture, mm. but also in societal culture. Mm. And uh, trying to co-create a society that supports these kinds of developments, a more conscious society. So th that is really what I mean by a more conscious society. That is a society that really acknowledges mm. these uh, processes and can support these processes, both on an individual basis, but also on organizational mm. and societal basis. Mm. A society that can help people uh, find themselves mm. and to grow as individuals, grow as humans. Would you say that it's um, a necessity to somehow, at least in our westernized part of the world, to you know have a job, have some kind of a career, professional development, and maybe be, feel the material aspects being covered, that you feel kind of in a safe place before you can somehow rest in that sense of peace and safety and then get this spark of you know increased consciousness about how the system and the whole system works together and get these insights and the motivation to do something to contribute yes. or 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 no, is no, it absolutely. To no, do no, it no, in, no 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 i i think um, of course in, in, that that's a very complicated question and it doesn't have a mm. a, a simple answer but i think that most developmental psychologists are quite in agreement on that individual psychological development, for that to occur, you need to have what they call a safe holding environment. Mm. If you feel insecure and afraid and you do not know if you're going to keep your job or you might be unemployed and you're not making your end means, then you, it's natural for you to be acting mm. from a base of fear. And that is not going to lead to any substantial development. Mm. So one prerequisite mm. for personal development and maturation is certainly that you need to have uh, some sort of feel a safe holding environment. But that doesn't mean that you have to be rich or anything, of course. Mm. Of course. Mm. I mean, for what is safe for one person uh, mm could be very uh, minimal, but you need to have some sort of uh, mm. safety network. Mm. 
and in a society where you don't have any safety network and a large part of the population are actually living in fear, there you will see no, uh, mm. no development. But then the, the second thing that uh, developmental psychologists would, would say is that, of course, having a safe environment and feeling safe, that's just the first step. In order for development to actually happen, at least uh, more substantial development, then you need to have some sort of uh, unsettling experience that makes you start questioning mm. where you are at the moment. Mm. And um, th that could be, of course, anything from uh, things in your world uh, changing, like in midlife your parents might die and then you're starting to realize that that you are next in line and <laughs> that for the first time you might realize in your 40s or 50s that you are actually mortal mm. and that might be a shocking <laughs> experience to you and that might mm. start something going mm. it might not be that drastic it could be a divorce or that you lose your job so you might be fairly economically safe, but you lose your job and where are you in your career and who am I when I'm not uh, this uh, business person mm. any longer, when I'm not having this business identity. Mm. And that could start a process of, uh, of maturation mm. that could take uh, many years, at least a few years, mm. but then hopefully something very uh, different and uh, transformative could happen. And that is, of course, these sort of experiences, that is, of course, what we are t trying a bit to do when we have uh, our adult retreats at Ekferit uh, Island that my foundation is, uh, is organizing. It is to try to create a safe holding environment, but then also trying to uh, make ourselves uh, ask the difficult questions uh, as well about ourselves and about life and about purpose. And uh, for leaders, however you choose to define those, if you could give you know, one piece of advice or so, what, what would it be? To uh, really embrace change and to realize that in 10 years our society will be completely different. Your organization will probably have to be completely different. And to embrace that and to see what implications that will have on how you can support your organization, your staff, to be able to uh, handle that mm. transition, that complexity. Mm. What sort of personal development would that uh, necessitate for employees to be able to be co-creators in that process? What corporate culture would you need to create? What corporate structures could you have that can support this transition? Mm. So in order to stay in business, mm. you need to em embrace change in a way that has not been necessary to do uh, before. Before companies would have to reinvent themselves every 10 years. In the future, we will have to reinvent ourselves every year. Mm. 
So hence, the, 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 as you say, the structure, the system of a company as such is changing uh, all the time. But I'm just curiously thinking, how will it look like if we think about a classical today, medium or big size corporation with still some kind of a hierarchical structure? even if they tend to work in projects and, and so on and be pretty agile, it's still a classic structure. Mm, mm. Do, you, do you foresee a completely different kind of structure? Definitely. Mm. I, I definitely think that the old hierarchical structure, even if you would do it in a matrix form mm. or project-oriented, th that thinking will not survive mm. the constantly changing business mm. environment. I think the jury is still out on what will replace it. And of course, there are many thinkers uh, and writers coming up with uh, suggestions. And if I should recommend one book there, I would recommend Frederick Laloux's book, Reinventing Organization, mm. that is addressing exactly this uh, mm. question. And uh, interestingly enough, doing it also from a conscious development mm. perspective. He is definitely arguing that all employees in future organization will have to be able to, to operate on a, a higher level of awareness in, in different respects and be able to take a very much stronger self-leadership position and be able to see a much larger picture of what is going on in order to be able to act much, much more uh, independently and, and quicker. Mm. But I don't think that even, even though Frédéric Laloux gives a few examples in his book there of, of organizations, I, uh, I think we have yet to see uh, very successful uh, examples of completely uh, new types of organizations, especially if we're talking larger organizations. In the smaller scale, I think we already see that. I mean, every little tech startup or smaller organization are, are operating on a completely different operating system mm. today than uh, 10 or 20 years ago when you were still doing your business plan and your five-year planning and and all of that is much more ad design thinking and sprint thinking and uh, mm. agile uh, methodology but that's st still much more easy to implement if you're a small company mm. than if you have uh, many hundred or thousands or tens of thousands of employees no. There's many Im impressive um, uh, things in these smaller, more agile uh, new uh, companies. The only thing that I'm a bit kind of conscious about is that they tend to see the tech aspects as their kind of religion almost, as if it's just the solution to everything. Yeah. So that the word startup and entrepreneur is so much equal to everything that is digital and, and, and tech-driven, yeah. which and is also somehow to simplify. Uh, yeah, yeah, and also that tech is the solution to, mm. to everything. So when I ask the question yeah. of, of, so in order to be able to handle all this wonderful uh, yeah. technology that we are inventing and this uh, rapid change, mm. uh, do we not need to work on ourselves, on our personal development in order to be able to handle that? Mm. But then some of my friends in Silicon Valley assures me that, no, 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 we don't need to do that. We will invent a chip 
that we will implant in your brain and oh that God. will ma make it possible <laughs> to live in this future world. So even if that would be possible, I don't think that is the future that I would want uh, to have for, for myself nor for future generations. Mm. But we, 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 will, uh, mm. we will see. I think that um, technological development and uh, personal development, that is going to have to go... Uh, hand in hand, mm -hmm. if we are going to be able to stay on top of things as uh, humans and create a flourishing human uh, mm. society. Mm -hmm. I'm 100% sure, and this will be more and more evident for mm. every year going uh, forward. Mm -hmm. And um, from the Silicon Valley kind of reality, what is it that you are impressed by there? The uh, positive... Uh, attitude and the positive um, sentiment mm. because in many other places in the world not at least in politics today but mm. also uh, in other places there is uh, there, there is so much negativity and so little hope at least there is is positivity and uh, and hope in uh, in silicon valley mm. perhaps a little bit too much even in in mm. in some respects mm. and going back to you if you were to give advice to yourself, let's say 15, 20 years ago, what would it be? That's a difficult uh, question and it's also <laughs> a very personal question. <laughs> um, I think it, it um, my advice to myself 15 years ago would probably be the same advice that I would still give myself today. And that is to dare to be more uh, vulnerable. Mm. and um, not always needing to uh, have this um, mask of certainty and uh, to some extent also success, but to dare to be uh, vulnerable and to dare to uh, fail and to dare to acknowledge both to myself and to others around me that... Um, I don't know, to dare to be weak, but that's easier. If, if that easy, is weakness, that's the question, that, right? That's easier said than done, and it would still be the advice that I would give myself uh, mm. today. But I think that, that that is a little bit part of what we, what, what is going to be necessary in, in the future generally in, in life and in organizations. We, we need to come to a new level of authenticity. Mm. Authenticity, as you say, I mean, we already live in a complex world, so why complicate things? If we know who we are and if we find out who we are and what we stand for, we can be authentic and we don't have to think about playing any games or doing any theater at all. We can just be ourselves and, yeah. of course, in a professional environment and all, but that will simplify so much also for other people because if you're authentic, you invite authenticity, I think, and it becomes just easier to build relationships and you know who and what to trust. Yeah, but, but as you pointed out, mm. in order to be your authentic self, mm. you need to have found exactly. yourself. Yeah. Otherwise, you are just playing another mm. role than you being somebody else's mm. persona mm. And, and not your, uh, yourself. Mm. So that again goes back to uh, the personal development yeah. side. And also realizing, again, like the very visionary politicians and intellectuals did, 
more than 100 years ago, that democracy as an institution is actually relying upon us having found ourselves and uh, knowing our values and knowing what we want and that they those values and our ideals actually emanate from ourselves mm. and not from uh, mm. our peer group or our, from our parents or from mm. some other external sources. Mm. And to finish off on an on a even a larger scale, what do you think the world needs most at this time? We need to have a new view on society. And that we need to go from sort of a, a view where we take most of our, our society for uh, uh, given. F familiarity such as uh, religion or uh, the market or democracy can easily be perceived as something independent of us humans. Even though it's us humans, of course, that have created these institutions. So to become much, much more aware of the fact that this society is not something that is just given to us, but that it is constantly co-created and that we can all play a very important role in the co-creation of our socially constructed society. Mm. That, I think, is one very important thing. And then the second important thing, that is going from a view of our lives as focusing on, on well-being or happiness to focus on purpose. And of course, for, for previous generations, material growth what was the right thing to do in order to reduce uh, distress and uh, suffering. But I think that we have now, at least in uh, many parts of the Western world, we have reached a level where further material growth does not increase our happiness. Mm. Period. Our focus will need to shift to focus on things like justice, community and on purpose. And I think that really incorporating that in our in our public narrative and in our understanding of ourselves, that we could lift the focus on growth, individual growth, societal growth measured in GDP and in material growth, and to start to focus on justice, community and, uh, and purpose, and really thinking as you did. What is the purpose of our country? What is the purpose of, uh, of EU? What is the purpose of uh, my organization? And, is, and finally, and most importantly, what is the purpose for me as an individual? Mm. What is my purpose in life? Why am I here? What am I here to contribute? Mm. Thank you very much, uh, Thomas. Can I ask you, how, how was it to be on the podcast? Nervous and, and, and <laughs> difficult and difficult. And, and, and of course, it's so difficult with these um, mm. very large mm. questions mm. and to try to boil down these questions uh, 
to uh, some comprehensible short sentences. That That's not easy, and I do not know if we have succeeded. We, we'll have to listen to it and see. <laughs> Thank you. Thank but, you very but much. You, but you feel it was meaningful uh, it was to go through. It was very, very mean, meaningful. And thank you for, mm. for doing this. Thank you for thank lifting you. these mm. very important questions that you are lifting through your podcast mm. uh, series. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you, Thomas, and thanks for sharing everything. To find out more about Thomas and his work, you can head to thomas-bjorkman.com. Uh, and also you will find him on Facebook and LinkedIn. And of course, you can read the books that he uh, mentioned before, The Nordic Secret, The Market Myth, and The World We Create. And I truly appreciate if you share this episode with your network and friends for impact. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao.